Last Sunday we finished up Acts chapter 27. We're going to take a break before we finish, conclude our sermon series through Acts. We're going to do that after the Advent and Christmas seasons. Uh, This week we're going to be turning to the book of the Revelation chapter 3. And I'll explain why we're doing that in a moment. Let me first pray that God would bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. Let's pray together. O gracious God and most merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Scripture is coming from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is the letter to the church in Laodicea. Hear the word of God, it is written. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. If you are a member here at Covenant, you should have received your stewardship packet for 2023 within the last couple weeks. I hope that you have been prayerfully considering how you will give of yourself to God's kingdom in 2023, not just financially, but also with your time and talents. This morning, I want to address the topic of stewardship. This isn't something that we always do from the pulpit here at Covenant, but the stewardship of our resources is not a small matter in Scripture. As the Apostle Peter states, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
We are given instruction in Scripture for how to respond to God's grace in Jesus Christ by being good stewards, good managers of the gifts that God has entrusted to us to bring Him glory for the upbuilding of His kingdom and the acknowledgement of His goodness in our lives. We are not to be selfish with the resources God has given to us, nor are we to steward them carelessly. Rather, we are to take a thorough evaluation of our lives and commit to give ourselves to God's kingdom in intentional ways. Therefore, I think it's helpful for us to spend some time this morning considering what Scripture has to say. And I'm going to take a sort of unconventional approach to this topic by looking at this letter to the church in Laodicea. It does have some important things to say to us about stewardship if we have ears to hear. First, though, a little context is in order. Hopefully, all of you are aware that contained within Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find letters to seven churches in what is considered Asia Minor. These churches are all in present-day Turkey. And we are told in the first chapter of Revelation, that, uh, which is from Jesus and of Jesus, given to the apostle John, that John is instructed to write what he had seen and what was to take place. And immediately after being told this, he received these letters from the Lord to these churches. Some have pointed out that these messages to the churches really take the form of a prophetic oracle. R.C. Sproul discussed that, uh, what a prophetical oracle was in Sunday school this morning. So rather than a letter, they really take the form of a prophetic oracle, so they might be seen as sermons to the churches, but regardless of how we look at them, they are a word from the Lord, which all follow a very predictable structure or form, giving the churches an assessment of what Jesus finds pleasing or displeasing about them. The individual church was addressed, followed by a Christ title, which is seen here in the letter to the church in Laodicea in verse 14. And these served as an important reminder of who Jesus was and is. Then most of the churches had something they were commended for, whether it was enduring persecution, loving one another, being faithful and protecting doctrine, Christ knows the works of each of his churches, and he tells them so. This can be a great comfort, can also be a great challenge. And if you read what was said to all of the churches, then you will find that most of the churches, with the exception of only two of the seven, were then told that Christ had a complaint against them. He saw their good works. He also saw where they had fallen short. And so he presented to them the areas that needed correction. And his criticism was followed by a word of correction. Also followed by a a warning or a word of encouragement, depending on how you look at it, that he was coming to them soon. And finally, an encouragement to repent and hold fast, followed by... 
a word about conquering and a call to hear what Jesus says for those who have ears to hear his words. And if you read through these letters to the churches and you pick up on this internal structure, then you will notice something in this letter to Laodicea. You will notice that something is lacking here. There is no commendation written to Laodicea. There is nothing for which Christ compliments them. And it becomes pretty evident that this was because there was nothing that Jesus found commendable about this church. He told them instead that they made him want to vomit. This is what is meant in verse 16 by the comment, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's actually more than one Greek word for spit. The one used here is a violent spitting. It is a word used for vomiting. So our English translation at this point really doesn't do justice to the level of disgust found in the Greek. Now think about that for a moment. If Jesus were to look at us as individuals, if he were to look at us as a church, what would he say? Would there be something that pleased him for which he could offer a compliment, a word of commendation, a word of encouragement, a a pat on the back? Or would he tell us that we make him nauseous? So what was it about this church that caused Jesus to skip the compliments and go right to the complaints? What was it that caused Jesus to give Laodicea the most scathing criticism out of all of the churches? Well, there are really two things here. First, he told them that he found them to be neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. What does that mean? Well, if you know anything about Laodicea, then you know it was situated between two other cities which were clustered together in close proximity in the valley of the river Lycus. About six miles to the north was the city of Hierapolis. About 10 miles to the south was the city of Colossae. We find all of these cities mentioned together by the Apostle Paul at the end of his letter to the Colossians. Anyhow, we need to know a little something about these cities to get the context of Jesus' words to Laodicea here in Revelation. You see, Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. These springs were rich in minerals. They were known for their healing properties. We can think of perhaps Hot Springs, Arkansas. In contrast to the hot springs of Hierapolis, Colossae was situated at the base of a mountain was supplied with cold, fresh spring water, devoid of any heavy mineral content. It was immediately useful for drinking. But Laodicea had neither healing hot springs nor refreshing mountain springs. It was a large, prosperous city, though, known in particular for three things. It was known for its textile industry, especially its exceptionally soft black wool. It was known for its medical school, which specialized in ophthalmology, having created a special eye ointment that was renowned in the area. 
and it was known for its banking establishments. All three of these things worked together to make Laodicea a growing, thriving city where there was tremendous wealth. In fact, some of the wealthiest people in all of Asia Minor lived there. It was sort of like a Silicon Valley of Asia Minor. What Laodicea didn't have was an immediately available water source to supply water to all of its inhabitants. So a system of aqueducts was used to draw water from a hot spring about five miles south of the city, and it came into two 23-foot water towers from which the water was then distributed throughout the city. And while we might think that That is quite an impressive setup for an ancient city. It was necessary to support the needs of this bustling city. But consider what the water tasted like. It was potable, sort of. It was high in mineral content, and by the time it reached the city, it was, well, lukewarm. Anyone in here ever go for a long run on a hot day and get back from that run and have a longing for a tall glass of lukewarm water? And that evening, as your muscles ache, do you think to yourself, I just want to slip into a whirlpool tub filled with lukewarm water? Of course not. Lukewarm water isn't what we're looking for. It, It was then and it is now far from desirable. It didn't have the healing qualities of the hot water to the north. It wasn't able to provide refreshment like the cold water to the south. It was useless. And this is Jesus's first complaint against the church in Laodicea. They were useless to him and his kingdom. This is what's being communicated here. But notice that Jesus didn't condemn them for any specific sin. We see that in some of the other churches in these two chapters of Revelation. Some of the churches are chastised for their toleration of sin, for their lack of love toward one another, for their participation in sinful behaviors, especially sexual sin. We don't see any of that here. No, there was nothing negative that was readily apparent about their spiritual state. Perhaps from the outside, they looked fine. They seemed respectable. It's fairly easy to appear respectable though, isn't it? We can have a membership at the right church. We can come to worship once a week or maybe perhaps even once or twice a month. We can have the right friends. We can do honorable work. We can have well-behaved children. We can live lives that are not objectionable. We, we aren't out making fools of ourselves, out cheating people and drinking and cussing and fighting. We can live lives that are morally upright. We can even be out trying to do good things in the community. We can be involved in the right civic organizations and be committed to charitable causes. That doesn't make us Christians, though. And and we can live in all of those ways and spiritually be as dead as a doornail. 
we can practice a phony piety. What all of these letters or sermons to the church has revealed is that nothing is hidden from Jesus. He sees all. He knows the hearts of his people. He knows the hearts of all people. He knows their intentions. And perhaps as respectable as the church in Laodicea looked, they obviously weren't a church spiritually on fire for the Lord. Their hearts were coolly indifferent toward the Lord. They didn't pursue with passion the one who had given his life for them. They didn't take their faith with seriousness worthy of the calling that they had in Christ Jesus. They didn't seek to apply their faith to every aspect of their lives. They, they weren't a church that responded appropriately to the grace that God had shown them in Jesus Christ. They weren't providing a faithful witness to Christ alive in them. They weren't filled with good works, striving to serve others and to love one another with earnestness. They weren't seeking to evangelize the lost. They just wanted to get along and go along spiritually. They just wanted to, to show up and check the box. And, and maybe they weren't even showing up all that much. They were too busy pursuing worldly things. A half-hearted Christian is of no use to Jesus, though. He wasn't getting the affection, the worship, the service that he is worthy to receive. So they might have professed him with their lips, but they denied him with their lives. But look at the other charge he makes against the church in Laodicea. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There are only two churches in this list of seven in which there is no reference to any opposition from outside forces. No persecution, no hardship. These churches are Sardis and Laodicea. They are the very churches that received the harshest criticism. And perhaps they weren't living out the gospel boldly enough for those outside the church to find objection and persecute them for it. But it was to Sardis that Jesus said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And there's something to this. There's something going on here. The reality for the church in Laodicea was that they were situated in a, in a prosperous city. And evidently there were Christians who were materially prosperous as well. They had been blessed with so much by God. But what were they doing with it? Were they using these gifts to serve God, to advance God's kingdom, or, or were they using these things to please themselves? Well, evidently, what they were doing with it was deceiving themselves into believing that they could take care of themselves, that they really didn't need the Lord's provision. They could provide for themselves. The first charge against the church in Laodicea was that they were useless. The second charge was that they were self-deceived. And here's the danger. 
This is one of the dangers of wealth. Wealth isn't inherently bad or evil. But wealth can entice us into thinking that we don't really have to depend on the Lord because our physical needs, our material needs are being provided for. And it's pretty easy to convince ourselves that we have created this situation for ourselves by our own innovation, our own hard work, our own thriftiness or craftiness. And because we are the ones who earn this wealth by the work of our hands and the sweat of our brows, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that the wealth belongs to us. And then we can easily begin to pursue this wealth because in it we find our security. In it we find our pleasure. In it we find our identity. And we can become more interested in pursuing wealth and enjoying it than pursuing the Lord and enjoying Him. Wealth was the common factor in both the Lycian church's uselessness and their self-deception. And even as we might acknowledge that we need to be forgiven of our sins, even as we say that we look to the Lord for our justification, these can become pretty abstract to us. And we might not really practically look to the Lord for anything at all, causing us to become indifferent toward him and to wander from him spiritually, that is a really dangerous place to be. Relying on ourselves, not depending upon the Lord, not living a life that acknowledges that in the Lord we live and move and have our being completely indifferent to the Lord, devoting little time or energy considering the Lord and seeking to worship and serve Him and not knowing that that's where our heart is. Someone once said that the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's a very, very dangerous thing to be one who calls ourselves a Christian, but who is indifferent to the Lord. As Jesus tells the other churches, I am coming soon. We don't want Jesus to find us being coolly indifferent to him when he arrives, lukewarm towards him. There's a very important reason why the first beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. R.C. Sproul began to get into that this morning. Our primary position before Jesus must be one of humility and neediness. We come to him acknowledging that we are sinners, bankrupt before God, completely helpless before him, desperately needing his grace, needing his forgiveness, needing his spirit, his life, his strength, needing the peace and freedom that only he can pr provide. We come surrendering ourselves completely to him in his mercy. This is our posture before him if we are to be saved. And we must recognize in a very real way that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift, that all that we have comes from him. But we must, mustn't only acknowledge that we desperately need him with our lips, we must also live like it. We must truly look to him for our every need, material and spiritual. We must look to him for our joy and hope. We must commit ourselves to him and trusting ourselves to him and submitting to his rule in our lives. 
The kingdom doesn't belong to those who come half-heartedly, thinking that they mostly have it together, thinking that if Jesus can just provide forgiveness, then, then they can take it from there. The kingdom belongs to those who recognize their neediness, who, who recognize themselves to be wretched sinners, who seek the Lord in his righteousness, who hunger and thirst for him. We find here that Jesus, the God of truth, the one who is faithful and true, saw that the church in Laodicea was living in a state of uselessness and self-deception. And he, in his grace, called them on it. You have all of this wealth, but you are actually absolutely bankrupt. You have this miracle eye ointment, but you are actually completely blind. You have the finest black wool clothing, but you are entirely exposed. You are to be pitied. You are wretched, and you don't even know it completely self-deceived. You think you have everything together. You think that everything is fine. You've convinced yourself that you are safe and that you have everything you need. You've convinced yourself that you can depend upon yourself and it couldn't be further from the truth. This is why scripture warns us about the deceptiveness of wealth. Wealth can lead us to wrongly believe that we lack for nothing, that, that we can sustain ourselves that we can not only have security, but that we can also buy happiness. It can entice us into thinking that we should be served rather than serve. And we can easily begin chasing money, worshiping money, finding all of our joy and purpose and identity in money. We can end up serving material wealth and possessions. But Jesus tells us that we can only serve one master. Scripture wants us to understand that wealth makes a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. So the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy in this way, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is what we should really be after. That which money can't buy, but is freely given. We should be after the forgiveness and righteousness offered in Jesus Christ. We should be after the treasures of his kingdom, the riches of his grace. We should be after the pleasures found in Christ. We should be about living to the glory of God. This is what Jesus counsels the church in Laodicea, and this is what Jesus counsels us. All that's in this world will fade, but God's kingdom will last forever. What are we pursuing? Where are we investing ourselves? And the scary thing is that out of all the seven churches in Revelation, which provide for us examples today about what to pursue, what to avoid, perhaps our context is like which church? Laodicea. We live in a prosperous nation. 
All of us are materially wealthy, regardless of whether we consider ourselves rich or not. Compared to the rest of the world, any of us in this room are richly blessed. And so we all face this temptation to fall into the same trap as those in Laodicea had fallen into, to become useless to the Lord and self-deceived. This is the sin that is crouching at our door, waiting to pounce. And God's word to us is to be sure to master it. We don't want to be Christians of indifference. We should desire to be Christians individually and as a church collectively who are on fire for the Lord and who desire to be useful to him in his kingdom. And a way that we do this is to first come humbly before him proclaiming, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I claim. We have nothing to offer the Lord to earn our salvation. But he has richly blessed us with his grace, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he has richly blessed us with gifts to serve him. And so responding to his grace, we should make a commitment to be good stewards of our money, of our time, of our talents. And it isn't about trying to check a box. It's not about trying to buy our way into heaven. To the church in Laodicea, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He says this to those who are acting indifferently to him, but, but Jesus wanted to reestablish relationship and intimacy with him. Jesus desires for us to open our hearts to him. He desires to come and take up residence in us. And his promise is that if we would let him into the house of our hearts, that he will let us into the house of his father. If we will let him sit with us at our tables, he will let us sit with him on his throne. But he doesn't just come to bestow salvation. He comes to receive our submission. He comes to be the Lord of our lives. So our stewardship is about allowing Christ to enter in and reign as sovereign Lord over our lives. The ways in which we give ourselves away should be an expression of our heartfelt desire and thanks to the Lord. It should reflect our affections for him. It should reflect an understanding that we belong to the Lord and that all that we have is a gift from him entrusted to us for our safekeeping and our wise investment. It should reflect our understanding that our, our true treasure is not in the things of this world, but in heaven. It should reflect our commitment to serve the Lord joyfully and wholeheartedly. So I pray that we would commit ourselves to the Lord in this way in the year to come. As long as we have life and breath in our lungs. And I pray that if the Lord were to send us a letter, that it wouldn't sound anything like this letter to the church in Laodicea. That he wouldn't look at us and find those who are half-hearted toward him half-hearted in our worship, half-hearted in our service, half-hearted in our giving, self-deceived that we are living Christian lives and in right standing with him, checking the box of our duties to the Lord while never really submitting our lives to him. But I pray that we would be commended for our joyful 
and sacrificial giving of ourselves. I I pray that it would sound like what the Apostle Paul said of the churches in Macedonia, of whom Paul wrote about in his second letter to the church in Corinth. He wrote this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Brothers and sisters, may those be the words that are written of us. You are a church that have burned hot for God, who have loved much, who have persevered and remained faithful, who have not feared suffering, who have loved righteousness. We want to be the ones who hear the Lord say to us, I have seen your works. I know your faith. Well done. Enter into my father's house. Come into my father's table. Sit with me on my throne. May it be so concerning us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, I pray that if we need to be jolted from complacency, that if our hard hearts need to be softened, Lord, that if we are about checking a box, Lord, I pray that we would hear the knock of Jesus Christ today. And I pray that we would open the door of our hearts and that we would invite Christ to come in. That we would receive salvation in his name. And Lord, submit our lives to his rule. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would do a work of transformation in our lives, that you would make us to be people who are generous, who are joyful, who are passionate about following our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that it would all be to your glory. For I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel, I invite you now to stand and let us affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed out of Philippians chapter 2. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a 
to the glory 